Religious organizations comprise an incredibly diverse universe across the U.S. on measures such as ideology, practice, location, size, just to name a few. Interestingly, though, despite all of these differences, clear trends are emerging regarding the challenges faced by this sector. The challenges include investment-related issues, which we'll touch on, but it goes a lot deeper than just the dollars and cents. I'm glad we have some experts with us today here to share some insights. Hi, I'm Claire Gola, the head of Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, and this is Inspired Investing, where we inform and educate organizations and individuals who strive to invest purposefully with and for a mission. Today, I'm honored to be joined by two members of the Council of Church Advisors, Fran Brown, managing partner at Cape and Krauss, and my very own colleague, Kim Davis, a principal and financial advisor here at Bernstein. Hi, Fran. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the show. Hi, Claire. Thanks for having us. Hi, Claire. It's great to be here. Thanks, guys. I'm going to kick it off by asking you both this question, but I'm going to start with Fran. Fran, you have a significant focus at your firm on faith-based organizations, and I'd love to hear a little bit about who you serve and the key issues that you're observing across the marketplace today. Thank you, Claire. Cape and Krauss is a top 200 CPA firm, and we serve exclusively faith-based organizations. So it's a very unique CPA firm with a real niche focus. Uh, our organizations are everything from higher education, so Bible colleges, uh, universities, seminaries. We serve a lot of international missions groups. We serve a number of local nonprofit organizations, and we serve several hundred churches around the country. Our firm is made up of about 170 people spread out across the USA. Uh, we have clients in almost every state in the country. And, you know, really with uh, our client base, what we're seeing is, you know, when you look at some of the financial challenges, and I would say these are certainly not unique to faith-based, but I think sometimes uh, they get overlooked within this industry. Competition, believe it or not, within churches and other faith-based organizations is a big issue for them to be looking at. There's fewer dollars to go around within the charitable giving. Cost of infrastructure. So as we all know, when you look at the cost of buildings, whether and then also look at cost of IT, the cost of hiring, uh, the really the right staff, the best staff, all of that could be very expensive. And so that puts uh, more pressure on the organization. And then another big area is succession planning. A lot of organizations, whether it be churches that might have been grown under the founding member, whether it's local nonprofits who really had more of an entrepreneurial person start that nonprofit, uh, they run into succession planning just like any other organization would. And those can really be key issues for them to be dealing with. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, something that you read about in the news in terms of decreasing numbers of people actually going to worship. And when you think about the fact that people give oftentimes, you know, to their church or to their house of worship at the service, um, that, that can be a, a challenge as well, I'm sure. So, Kim, you've developed a significant expertise in this community as well, um, using your acumen as a financial advisor and your incredible involvement in the community and as a member of the Council of Church Advisors. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing out there? Absolutely. And I think Fran did a great job of laying out some of the issues we're seeing. But that that very issue that you just mentioned is really critical. The fact that there are fewer people attending and affiliated with religious organization has meant a direct impact to the cash flow or donations that they receive. 
But it also means that a lot of times the real estate that they own is not right-sized or appropriate for the future. Um, I'll give you an example, and I see this all the time, and especially in the New York metropolitan area. You may have a building and structure that is decades or centuries old that is equipped to handle a congregation of 200 people, and you've got about 20 to 25 people showing up. And what that's meant is that the real estate is at the same time a blessing and a curse, in that it's very expensive to maintain. You've got a lot of maintenance repairs um, and other costs associated with it. And at the same time, many churches are trying to understand as fiduciaries how they can monetize that real estate responsibly to support mission. Yeah, I would imagine that it uh, makes it more complicated because of the fact that this is a sacred space, right? This is considered a place where people do worship and where very important programs for the community are being provided. It's gotta be very difficult to sell an asset like that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, what we try to do is not necessarily lead to a sale. What we'll do is provide objective advice and analytics to help churches understand what their decisions will mean. Uh, For example, we helped one church evaluate how they should think about a land lease or a lease of property that they weren't using. So a parking lot Mm. that does not have any deep, meaningful spiritual value to the uh, (laughs) members. Right. But it's it was basically sitting there underutilized. And at the same time, they didn't have the money to pay for a lot of really important mission and programming work. And that was one solution where we went to them and said, look, you've got this cash flow coming in. Here is a responsible amount to invest and put aside in order to build an endowment so you're better insured for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think delivering on mission can mean a lot of different things. And so it's a thinking about that broadly. So that's, that's a really interesting point. Fran, you know, with all of this diversity across the market, it's arguably, I would say, fairly fragmented. Um, Your firm has developed a tool that assists churches in assessing their relative financial health. Do you think you could share a little bit about that and what led you to develop it? Sure. As I mentioned, we serve, you know, approximately 500 churches around the country. And most of those are audit clients. And some of them are, are the, whether they're large denominations around the the country uh, or just large independent churches. Uh, We serve several of the largest churches in the country. And one of the things with churches in particular is there's no public data. You know, when a traditional nonprofit or college or uh, private school, they all have to file 990s. Churches do not have to file anything. So their data is very private. And so one of the things that we were hearing from our clients is they always want to know how are they doing certainly how they were doing on their own trend analysis, but also they wanted to know how they were doing in respect to their peers. Uh, we all like to compare ourselves. We all wanna know how we're doing to, you know, when we look at the next uh, organization. And so we were able to take the data that we've collected from, uh, as I said, hundreds of clients and pull that together in, into what we call the Church Financial Health Index. And it's a process where we take a lot of financial data. We also take some non-financial data square footage of the facilities, number of attendees, number of giving units. And we pull all of that data together and we come up with over 25 key ratios for these churches. And then that allows us to to help them see themselves on a trend analysis, but also see themselves on a comparison basis with some of their key competitors. I hate to use that word with churches, but uh, really (laughs) that's that's how you would look at it. But what we're able to do is we can... Uh, take a church that might be, let's say it's a 3,000-person church in multiple sites, we can take our database and only compare them to other churches with that 
number of attendees and, and multiple sites. Uh, if it's a single location church with 300 people, we can then give them comparison data to single location churches with just a few hundred people. So the comparison data is very meaningful because it's tailored to that particular church that we're looking at. That's great. I mean, it sounds like a number of decision makers or fiduciaries at churches are, are really professionalizing to a certain extent, and I would say maybe upping their game in terms of their financial metrics. So it's, a, it's an interesting thing to think about. Kim, this reminds me of a framework that you've used. I've loved reading about some of your cases in helping organizations figure out the optimal, I'd say, amount to spend versus invest. Do you want to talk a little bit about that framework? Absolutely. And I think framework is a great way of putting it because a lot of times, especially when we're dealing with uh, organizations that are funding a new endowment, for example, with a uh, new cash flow from a lease or uh, the sale of an asset. So let's take the lease, for example. One thing we do is utilize a framework called total mission value. And conceptually, think about it as stacking up all of the money that you put towards the good of the work that you're doing and mission uh, in support of your organization over the years. And on top of that, any remaining funds that you've preserved for the church or uh, synagogue or other religious organization over the years. And that is an objective way in order to measure what your total financial impact is over time and what you've done to preserve the financial health of your organization. And it's not necessarily, it's, that's great. And it's not necessarily an argument that you should spend less today so that there's more for tomorrow, right? Where you, you hear this often uh, in sort of endowment speak, right? You know, the less you spend today, the more you have in the future. It's really about what's the optimal decision or what makes the most sense for the specific entity uh, and the trade-offs. The trade-offs also include asset allocation. So I'm curious about how you are recommending uh, allocations or what some of your recommendations might be for these churches and uh, religious institutions today when we think about it, particularly the less rosy or robust outlook that we have for uh, the capital markets looking ahead. Sure. And I, I think you have to step back and think about the, um, it's a really good point, the framework uh, for the various buckets of money. For example, if you have short-term assets or an emergency fund or something for a construction project that's coming up, that would certainly be uh, appropriate to invest in a very liquid, safe portfolio. But if we're talking about long-term funds, where you're looking to them to support the organization in perpetuity, and most organizations want to be around forever in perpetuity, then for the right organization, it may make sense, especially if we see a lower return environment for traditional asset classes, to consider investing in some appropriate illiquid assets, which would mean, for example, real estate or private equity. But again, it has to be right-sized, and uh, you have to do your diligence to make sure that it's appropriate. You know, it all makes sense. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the whole concept of responsible investing. Yeah. Um, so Kim Orfran, does that come up in your conversations with the churches and the synagogues and other religious groups that you work with? I'll say that it's coming up more and more. And I think that with a lot of organizations, they don't necessarily come and say, you know, we really want to think about our ESG or a responsible investing mandate, I think there's a broader philosophical debate going on with nonprofits and religious organizations about how do you reconcile the role of a nonprofit organization, but also accumulating a lot of assets? And what is your responsibility to do the right thing for society within your portfolios? And more and more donors are asking board members and significant organizations what their policies are with respect to responsible investing. So even though it's a relatively small portion of the marketplace today, 
I would say it's going to continue to expand and be uh, more important and relevant. Yeah, and Claire, I think a lot of it has to do with the specific organizations as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, we represent organizations around the country. There are a number of uh, churches that certainly would have some restrictions on some vice uh, investments uh, where they don't want to be involved with, but they might look at uh, certain areas as acceptable investments that perhaps a more socially conscious organization might be against. And so it's certainly not one size fits all for any, um, any of these organizations, but it is important that they communicate their core missions, their core beliefs to their investment advisors. And, and we oftentimes will help them with how to best express that so that they can make sure that what's being achieved on the investment side is going to be consistent with their mission and with their goals that they have set for their organization. That's great. And I think Tim would probably echo the fact that we tend to put the organization's mission front and center in the investment policy statement because the whole idea of investing and having this pool of assets is what's the end goal, right? What is the mission of the organization? What are we trying to achieve over time? So that's really helpful. So Fran, that brings up the point, you know, given that you have the benefit of working with a wide range of faith-based institutions across the country, who do you see out there that is really doing things better than others? Or what are some of the traits that you see in certain religious organizations that are really leading to financial strength and sustainability? That's an area where when we sit down and we look at our clients, we try to help them uh, perform at, the, at their best. One of the things that really jumps out is the organizations that tend to be successful over time. And when we say successful, that's not just financially. It's successful in meeting their mission. It's successful in growing and in taking care of their employees. Uh, those tend to be very professionally managed organizations. And a lot of that comes from, we talked earlier about how oftentimes you have an entrepreneurial type founder of an organization. And the sooner sometimes that they step aside as, as the organization has grown and really become an advisor as opposed to the daily leader, that's when you really can see some of that growth and, and some of that maturing of an organization. Successful organizations are really uh, keen at adapting to new technology. Um, you know, we have a, a number of our churches, you know, the more financially healthy churches have a very high percentage of online giving. We have a number of churches where that percentage will be well over 80% of online giving, which really uh, offsets that tendency today of lower church attendance. Because what we're finding is uh, on the church attendance side is people are going, they're just not going as often. And so if you're waiting for them to show up to give, uh, that could be very dangerous. So the really strong organizations get a lot of their giving online and the use of technology. The other thing that they do is they stay very focused. Uh, It's like all of us in our own business area. If we stay focused on what we do best, we tend to have a higher rate of success. We see that with our organizations as well. Those that stay really focused on their key mission are the ones that tend to have the long-term success. So a lot of times, even with churches, you think, how could a church get off of mission? Uh, Well, oftentimes churches will start adding other resources that they might provide and and maybe they open up a soup kitchen and then they want to do a homeless shelter and all of those are great things and we need those desperately in this country however sometimes when you start adding too much 
um, you lose sight of your central mission and you can spread yourself too thin. So unless you're, you're truly professionally managed and you have the resources behind you, uh, that can really be a danger to an organization. Hmm. That's really uh, an interesting point because you do see churches and there are services that are desperately needed. And you see churches in many cases filling that gap, I think, where there's a need for services in different communities. So that's probably a really difficult thing to grapple with in terms of when there's such a need for services and you have the linchpin of the community or that institution is really the place for those services to be delivered. So it's a, it's a tough thing, I'm sure, for many organizations to struggle with. Um, you mentioned something here, too, about the idea of successful churches becoming more professionally managed to a certain extent. Kim, I know you've done quite a bit of work on the governance front with organizations and churches that you work with. Um, so I'm curious if you have any advice that you would provide for faith-based organizations that are seeking you know, success and financial sustainability, particularly on the governance front. Absolutely. I think this is an area where I'm extremely passionate about it because I see that this is where organizations couldn't go wrong. I think there's a tendency because you may have limited budgets or you have a volunteer board a lot of times in charge of a lot of these decisions to be hesitant to bring in professionals. They may say, well, we have somebody on the board who works at a bank or somebody who is a personal accountant. Um, But that's really not appropriate for management of the church's or organization's money. The steps that are really critical are to make sure that the fiduciaries and decision makers are educated and have set up the right uh, governance structure. So the most critical uh, documents and steps you need to take are drafting an appropriate investment policy statement. You also want to make sure that you have proper governance and controls to protect the assets and also inform future decision makers. And something else that we see that's missing a lot of times is a donor agreement, which may not be something that you realize up front because you would think, what is the problem with somebody leaving us a substantial request or a donation? But if you haven't figured out what the agreement is ahead of time with donors, you may end up with your hands tied with a a relatively small bequest with a lot of administrative burden. So those are just some examples to lay out the infrastructure, but they're all tools to get to responsible, transparent governance of the organization's money today and in the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more across the nonprofit sector, but especially with many of the religious organizations that we work with. Um, Kim, you're so passionate about this space and you've become so involved in the community. Um, I, I, I should have asked this in the beginning, but I'm curious for you to share a little bit about how you got so involved and why this is so important to you. Sure. Um, I guess I'll just uh, share that My life stories started as a little bit of an underdog. Um, I was born overseas in Korea, and I always say that I wouldn't be on this planet if it hadn't been for a uh, religious adoption agency that uh, connected me to my family. And um, so they brought me here, but then I grew up going to a church where, as a kid, I saw a lot of really, really nice people with the best intentions, knitting sweaters and doing what they could to try to keep it together. But they just didn't have the expertise or the infrastructure behind them, so they folded. Um, So I've seen firsthand what happens and and what good um, these organizations can do. But I've also seen what happens when even if you have the best people involved who are trying their hardest, if they don't have the resources, how it can go wrong. Um, So when I was asked to bring expertise that I've uh, gathered over the last uh, couple of decades working in the philanthropic, personal philanthropy, but also for a broader set of clients specifically to this community, I was really enthusiastic to help. That's great. 
it was clear that you have a personal story behind it because you put so much of yourself into this work uh, and it's clearly appreciated across the community. Fran, do you have any last uh, words of advice that you would want us to share across this sector as we part here? Sure. I think one of the areas that, that we haven't touched on yet, and I think down the road, it's going to become very critical for all nonprofits, but in particular faith-based, and that's mergers and acquisitions. And it seems like, how do you get a merger or an acquisition of nonprofits? Um, how does that really happen? And we have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy on working with organizations to combine resources to, whether it's through a joint venture or just shared resources. That's an area that I think down the road is gonna be of critical importance to the success of this sector. Uh, And for those that are are really serious about carrying out their mission, I think that's something that you're gonna be seeing a lot more activity in. That's a, a point well taken. And it makes me think, Kim, about the church that you grew up with and had they had some financial advice and potentially on a merger or an acquisition, maybe the story would have been a little bit different there. I agree. And I think um, Fran brought up a really good point, especially in the New York community. And I think each local area is different. But some of the best uses of various organizations' resources is to combine forces because traditionally a lot of these organizations were the backbone of community. Uh, They provided needed social services and and a lot of other support that I would say uh, the community is going to need more than ever if we hit an economic difficult period. And, And we also see people already who are facing some hardships. So if you can use space and you can use administrative resources more efficiently, that's just more money that's actually going to the the biggest priority, which is the the work of the organizations. That's great advice. So both of you, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you both spending some time with us today. Thanks for having us. It was great to be here. Of course. Uh, And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more from Bernstein's Endowment and Foundation Advisory Services, please see the link to our blogs in this episode's description. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please go to the iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts to subscribe and rate us. Also, please email us with your thoughts, questions, and feedback to insights at Bernstein.com. And be sure to find us on Twitter at BernsteinPWM. Thanks, everyone. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.